0: Father, this morning we confess with the author of Jude. Jude himself, as he declares that Christ alone is worthy of our acknowledgement of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And all who would compete for those distinctions in this life are idolaters and false authorities. And in Christ, in due time, not only will his church be triumphant, but every enemy will be placed under his feet. We stand in awe of these truths revealed in Scripture and in our own hearts by the power of the Gospel, awakening us to newness of life. We pray as we open your Scriptures today and behold your Son revealed, O Lord, that you would return us to those moments of the Incarnation and beyond where the first witnesses and testimony to God become man, worshipped and praised with their hearts awakened to the reality of God with us, Emmanuel, and their mouths equipped to proclaim the knowledge of Christ come to all who would hear. We pray today as your table is spread before us, both in the proclamation of your word and your word dramatized in the elements that you would reinforce to our souls the assurance of hope. And for the lost who may be gathered in this place, if there's any who have not repented and believed, If there are any who have not turned to Christ in the hearing of these words today, may the Spirit use the proclamation of your authoritative word, dear Jesus Christ, to cause them to turn from their sin, to repent, to believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. It is in your name we pray, the name of Jesus, high above all names. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege and blessing it is to gather together. And just in case you were wondering, you did not come into the room upside down. That was in fact a glitch in our computer system. We're in between computer systems, so thank you for bearing with us with a few technical difficulties. But I have in front of me a paper Bible, which is the old school way. I don't know if any of you still use Books. But they're kind of foolproof, and sometimes computers are a reminder of the blessing of the old ways. So as we turn to the Scriptures, not just this ancient form of recording them in codex or book form, we also have the ancient, enduring, never-failing, and immutable words of Christ to consider today. And we will do so by taking special note of one verse in the book of Jude, verse 8, and then dovetailing that with another primary text, Luke 2, 8-20, through this is the announcement of the angels of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The title of this morning's message is Sodom versus Shepherds. And consider a contrast. The unbelieving worldview as represented by Sodom and Gomorrah versus the awakening of the soul to the reality of Christ come to save, represented by the shepherds. The aim of this morning's message is to issue a call to worship by way of biblical example. We look to the example of the early... Uh, Characters in the Christmas narrative who testified to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the awe and the worship that they gave to the Lord freely as their hearts were moved and their eyes were opened is truly an inspiration for us and in fact a reason why we gather in His name today. So with your hearts open to the Word of God and to consider it in reverence, would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word today? And give me one second as I turn to two passages. So we'll begin. I'll read Jude 8, and then we'll read Luke 2, 8 through 20. Here is the Word of God. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This, the first Sunday of the month, typically for us is a communion Sunday. And we have opened a series from the book of Jude, following First and 2 Peter, and dovetailing with many themes, the, these two epistle writers, we consider an analogy or an example, or as I like to say, an event oracle of wickedness that was recorded to teach us a lesson long ago in the book of Jude. Jude is describing those who are enemies of the Lord and His people he calls those, these folks, the ones who he's calling out and preparing the church to do war against. Our last sermon along these lines was called a call to arms, false teachers. He explains that they are those, according to Jesus, the wolves in sheep's clothing, which infiltrate and seek to do great damage to the testimony of Christ. Well, Judas concerned that those who bear a common salvation, verse three, would contend for the faith. We see that in the same verse, which means to fight and to strive to maintain the foundations upon which we stand. And part of his admonition in this regard is that we recognize that there's nothing really new under the sun, but enemies of the Lord have, ex- have been alive and, and, and uh, active in each generation. And we should draw from this, ours is not excluded either. So in making his point, Jude reminds the church that back in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, in verse 7, in the surrounding cities, he says, which likewise likewise, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire, of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So what Jude is doing here is he's using ancient examples to identify the rotten fruit that will let you know, as Jesus said, by your fruits you will know them, those who are enemies, of the church. I came across an absolutely fascinating historical note in my studies on this passage this week. I don't know if you knew this. I, it certainly was news to me. There was a philosopher, historian, first century guy, a Jewish dude named Philo, who was writing around 53 AD, I think. And he records that in his day, smoke was still rising from the site of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. We're talking centuries and centuries earlier. Recently, I cited from this pulpit, and maybe uh, a year or so ago, uh, a document that was that surfaced from some scientists who figured out that there's archaeological or geological evidence, I should say, in the region, roughly speaking, where Sodom and Gomorrah lay, those cities on the plains. As near as they could figure, an asteroid actually exploded over the earth, and the mineral content and the bombardment of certain, you know, rare, uh, heat signatures and so forth of the surrounding region indicated that this blast, had, I can't even remember how many you know, tons of nuclear bombs this uh, celestial event represented there. This is documented among pagan uh, geologists in the historical record. And of course, that you know, faithless article went on to say, oh, we can rest ourselves assured that this really is it had nothing to do with uh, sin and judgment. It was merely a natural event. Oh, yeah, a natural event where an asteroid exploded right over the cities that God said were uh, going to be condemned and judged because of their wickedness and immorality. If that doesn't open your eyes to the reality of a God who, has, who can and will deliver consequences for sin, I don't know what will. Suffice it to say, this event was so profound, so extreme, that it was recorded in history that no crops could grow for some 700 years, and according to Philo, the smoke still rose from that region in his day, shortly after Jesus had come. For centuries and centuries, in its geographic situation, and for all time, I might add, in the Word of God, Sodom and Gomorrah smolders as a type, a foreshadow, an object lesson of judgment by eternal fire, which is deserving and prescribed for all Unrepentant sin. Jude cites the event oracle of Sodom and his warning against, and his warning against and condemnation of enemies of Christ's Church. Uh, suffice it to say, we are to take this seriously. To appreciate, I would go on to suggest the full impact of his letter. We should make it our goal to have Jude's references to prior revelation like Sodom and Gomorrah fresh in our mind as we read them. After all, they were certainly fresh in his mind as he wrote and he appealed to them so that his readers would understand the weight of what he intended to convey. So in the course of our series, I'll make it my goal to refresh our memory and reinforce our understanding from passages like Genesis 18 and 19 which record those two chapters, the rescue of Lot from these reprobate societies, even Sodom and Gomorrah. Furthermore, as we take the final verse of Jude, which I have suggested is a thematic verse by which we can summarize the lesson and intent of the entire letter. We have this verse, by the way, 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, forevermore. Amen. So taking this final verse in Jude as an organizing framework, we can draw a contrast between the philosophy of Sodom, summarized in verse 4. There's four references there as well. Relying on dreams, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, blaspheming the glorious ones. If we line that up side by side, we have quite the contrast The attributes of Christ proclaimed in the closing doxology are the polar opposite of the philosophy of Sodom summarized by those four phrases. From Jude, therefore, we learn to contend for the faith by discerning and opposing anything that denies or seeks to diminish the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just for the purpose of this message today, I've chosen to illustrate this distinction, this contrast between the worldview of Sodom and the heart of the beloved saints, uh, those that share a common salvation in the words of Jude, uh, by citing or juxtaposing the citizens of Sodom with the first witnesses of the incarnation. Apart from Mary and Joseph, among the first who recognized and welcomed Jesus, God become flesh, were those famous, now famous shepherds at the time lowly commoners in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Sodom is representative of false teachers, but these shepherds illustrate the heart of true worship, marking the church of Jesus Christ. So those are the extreme. On the one hand, the citizens of Sodom representing the wicked rebellion of this world. On the other hand, the shepherds outside Bethlehem, which represent eyes open to the reality of the Incarnation, and the worship our Lord and Savior deserves as a result. So let me give you a heading and four main points today organized around these four, all right, in total, eight references. Four references to the philosophy of Sodom, four references to the attributes of Christ, illustrated by the distinction between that ancient wicked society and the shepherds. So here's the heading. Wickedness of Sodom versus worship of the shepherds. First of all, Sodom relies on dreams while the shepherds recognized the revealed glory of Christ. Secondly, the wicked in Sodom, they were busy defiling the flesh, while the shepherds acknowledged the incarnation, majesty of Jesus. Thirdly, Sodom, the citizens thereof, they were rejecting authority in the way they ordered their affairs. But on the other hand, the shepherds acknowledged the cosmic, if you will, Dominion of Jesus Christ announced by angels. And then finally, while the inhabitants of Sodom were blaspheming the glorious ones, you see both events where the groups of people were visited by angels, the Sodomites, they blasphemed the glorious ones, the angels that visited them. But not so with the shepherds. They proclaimed the authority of the angels' words. They heeded and heralded the coming Messiah, echoing that message that appeared to them in the heavens over those fields on that glorious night. So that's the basic structure of our sermon today. I apologize. I wasn't able to print out ordinary notes. You might have got a copy of my handwritten notes. which might just make you more confused. But anyway, I'll do my best to try to clarify as we go, and hopefully it will be edifying for the saints. First of all, the wickedness of Sodom versus the worship of the shepherds. We have on the one hand relying on dreams, and the other hand revealed glory. Notice again in Jude, verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What in the world does it mean to rely on dreams? Well, I submit to you, you can turn with me, by the way. We'll be doing some back and forth today to Genesis 18 and 19. I submit to you that a good summary of this relying on dreams might be, or an explanatory phrase, subjective dreams. Experience. So people who rely on their experience, their subjective, meaning with reference to the subject, to them, as a standard by which to interpret reality, they're living according to the arbitrary measure of their own ideas, their own perception, their own dreams. The reason Jude would use a kind of elusive metaphor like this, like a dream, I don't know if you've had one lately, but you ever have that experience? A couple of us were talking about this recently where in your dream, it's crystal clear. Like, i got to race to a notepad when I wake up. This is amazing. I'm getting a new revelation, something profound I'm experiencing in this dreamscape. You wake up, and you think, and you recall some of the events and the happenings of your dream, and you find, oh, yeah, in the light of the morning and with the cognitive faculties restored to you of your ordinary reasoning, that dream was really stupid. It was incoherent. It made zero sense. So the idea of an incoherent dream As the basis for the morality and the identity of wicked people, just figuring it out by themselves, living by their own subjective experience, going with their tastes, their appetites, their preference, the cultural norms. Today we call it fancy words like progressivism and tolerance and things like that. We call it uh, living, you know, being up to date with the times and, uh, um, basically succumbing to any new and improved, quote-unquote, idea that comes. the scriptures call these things waves across the sea of a, basically a damnable landscape of heresy. But in, the, in, but in our eyes, when we just use ourselves as the reference in our religious narcissism, our centers of our universe, and think the best I have to offer and go on is my own experience, we are reverting to the impulses of original sin and we're living and relying on an elusive, self centered uh, uh, idol, basically, of our own subjective experience. And this is the way Sodom organized their affairs. In Genesis 18, this is a sharp contrast to the testimony and the experience of Abraham. In verse 16, It's Abraham has just been visited by the Lord himself and two angels. And it says in verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. Even that positional language is significant. Here we have something of an ascendancy, if you will. Abraham is lifted up to a vantage point with these ministers of God, these angels, these authorities representing the word of God. And then they're analyzing. It's the scrutiny of God's judgment, this society, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the Lord will go to Sodom, not because he needs to go there to know what's going on, no, but because the coming of the Lord in judgment is typical language to explain there is a day of reckoning and sinners ultimately won't get away with it. And so the Lord went, or so Abraham went with them, and uh, with them that is with the Lord and these angels to set them on their way, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord might bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether, according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So notice what is said of Abraham versus what is said of Sodom. For Abraham, he is chosen by God. His identity is that God has called him. For Abraham, his assurance is in covenant bond and relationship with the Lord. He is the Lord's son. The Lord has promises for him, a lineage whereby the name of the Lord will continue. The Lord has commanded his children and his household according to a universal ethic, an unchanging standard of righteousness, referred to here as the way of the Lord. Therefore, Abraham, God's servant, saved from his sin and set upon his rock, Jesus Christ, so to speak, he will proceed and his testimony will be one not of living Relying on his dreams, so to speak, but no, doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham everything he has promised him. So Abraham lived according to the revealed glory of Jesus Christ. The Lord revealed himself to Abraham in special revelation, personal encounter with the word of God that is unshakable, foundational, and stands forever. This is the covenant promise to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is the difference between a saint, the beloved, and the true church, and those who live according to themselves, their subjective understanding, experiences, preferences, idolatry, and religious narcissism. The wickedness of Sodom versus the worship of the shepherds, you could even say, the conviction of Abraham is starkly illustrated in the difference between the two. The Sodomites lived as if they were unreasoning beasts, wholly given over to the flesh and to the appetites trained by sin and depravity and the wickedness that had corrupted all mankind since the fall. But instead of fighting and recognizing these impulses as vices and evil and sin and wickedness, they wholly embraced them and were given over in their depravity to increasing levels of wickedness perversion. And thus, this is the consequence of relying on your dreams, so to speak. Now, notice in Luke chapter 2, a second contrast with the shepherds. It's incredible to see this scene opening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of the incarnation moment, or at the incarnation moment, in the same region, Luke 2, 8. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with fear. So notice what shapes the experience of these shepherds. It's the revealed glory of the Lord shining all around them. By the way, when you hear the Word of God accurately proclaimed or read it in its objective truth and clarity, you're encountering the glory of God Revealed to you. How do you respond? The shepherds, I submit, uh, responded rightly with fear. Now their fears were assuaged. The fear, as the angel said, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news and great joy. But at the beginning, when the gospel is proclaimed, the glory of the Lord is so powerful and terrifying and weighty in His law and in His resplendence, in His majesty and in His power that those who rightly see Christ and rightly see the gospel are initially moved to fear. We note this as a pattern through the New Testament when the Lord shows up and eyes are opened. When Peter sees that he is not interacting with a mere man, but his master and Lord can calm the seas. He shakes in his boots and he quakes with fear and it is the first sign of faith, if you will. Now later that glory, that Glory that inspires fear, moves to faith and assurance of peace. After all, based on this very child that was born, peace will come to men. But not before the angels sing glory to God in the highest, proclaiming His glory. And the shepherds go on to echo the glory of Jesus Christ in verse 20, glorifying and praising Him for all they had heard and seen as had been told them. Now angels, angels, mind you, visited Lot. I'm sorry, visited, yes, a lot, but visited Sodom and Gomorrah. Did the citizens of Gomorrah fear the angels? No, they did not. They didn't fear them one bit. Why? Because they were blind. Soon they were literally blind, but spiritually absolutely blind. And thus they did not witness the glory of the Lord all around them in his creation and even his sovereignly appointed messengers on the day when they came and said, repent or else... Instead of submitting to the word of God, they sought to violate these men. The shepherds, on the other hand, Lot, unfortunately, by the skin of his teeth, they were moved to fear and to marvel. To fear and to marvel, the glory of the revealed Christ. This glory shone, this glory was proclaimed, this glory was testified. The revelation of Jesus ought to move us to fear as well. Not to fear as one shaken in our boots of what he may do to us in our sin, but to fear cause fear in us to cling to Jesus Christ as our Savior, whose blood alone washes it away. And that fear then gives way to proclamation, of that glory to others, that Christ has come, and we marvel at this truth. There were no fear in the angel, there, was, there was no fear of the angels among the Sodomites, but this doesn't mean there wasn't reason to fear. we continue to read there as well, in chapter 19, 23, and 26, Yahweh rained fire down from Yahweh, if you will, and destroyed that place. And the intensity of the judgment was apparently so great that the smoke still rose from Sodom and Gomorrah that very night when the shepherds were visited by angels from the realm of glory. But their response was entirely different. This is the difference between the wickedness of Sodom, the blindness of the world, the depravity of sin and true worship of God's people. When their hearts are changed, their eyes are open, they repent and turn to Christ. Major point number two, defiling flesh versus incarnation, majesty. Back in Jude chapter eight, again, you'll notice I've used this glory, majesty, dominion and authority. Contrast in my subpoints. Or in my major points, I juxtapose with those four references to the wickedness of Sodom. Verse 8 again, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So we've mentioned relying on their dreams, that self centered uh, subjective experience, and uh, rather than the word of God. Secondly, the Sodomites were defined by those who defile the flesh. It says in verse 7 that they indulged sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. This is sexual perversion that was evident rampant in Sodom, such that the name of their society has become a byword for perversion the movement in modern society to overturn this association, notwithstanding. The the word perversion is a very important and biblical concept. It must be maintained. The word perversion implies that there is a standard of righteousness and that there is a deviation from the norm. We live in a society that is trying to reclaim the legacy of Sodom and Gomorrah, to erase all notion of sexual uh, holiness and standards of right and wrong when it comes to the expression of one's behavior in these areas of life, but the word of God cannot be changed or altered. Only minds and hearts become dull, blind. But as they become dull and blind and willfully neglect and refuse to admit what God has established forever, it doesn't make them right. It doesn't it? Doesn't make them immune to the consequences. It only makes them less aware of the sick or the knife of God's judgment or the fire restored or stored up in the storehouses of justice on their behalf that will be dealt upon them in God's perfect time if they do not repent. It is the mercy of God that points us out and calls us to announce the truth, to say, as we've said in recent weeks, repent or else. This deviance in Sodom and Gomorrah was born of a, sort of a false religion, by the way. And this false religion has taken different forms through the ages, and it's present with us today. In the past, Platonism, or Gnosticism, has proposed a dichotomy, which means an unrelated difference. And uh, this dichotomy goes like this. The, the claim is there's no necessary, no intrinsic, and no ethical relationship between our Conceptual preferences, what we think we are, and our biological or embodied uh, existence, what we are in the flesh or in our body. This might sound a little confusing, but today you see this whole movement in the so called distinction between gender and sex. Some today, in their perverse uh, revival of sodomite thinking, are trying to suggest that someone can be one thing and their consciousness or preference even though they're another thing in their body. What does this imply? No creator, no created order. God has not spoken, God has not engineered. Insistence on a difference between sex and gender is a denial of the created order. And what does it seek to do? In this false religion and false philosophy, it seeks to justify perversion. Uh, Plain and simple, that's what it is. The Bible calls this defiling the flesh. And this is the kind of thing that was rampant and uh, prevalent in Sodom and Gomorrah and reaped for them great judgment. Now, on the other hand, we see the incarnational majesty of Jesus Christ acknowledged by the shepherds. So blind in their perversion, the inhabitants of Sodom couldn't recognize the angels when they came. The or, I'm sorry, the shepherds, however, in the fields outside Bethlehem recognized not only uh, the testimony of the angels that Christ has come, but their own visitation that God had become man. And this is significant, and it relates to this point, and I'll explain why in a moment. Verse 11 in Luke 2, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. A few key terms, though, that relates to this concept of God's intent for body and soul. Unto you is born this day. What is the incarnation? It's Christ taking on flesh. It's God becoming man. It's God himself, the second person of the Trinity, forever exalted in uh, the glories, in pre-incarnate glory, veiling for a time his prior majesty and taking on the form of a servant, the body of a man forever. Jesus was resurrected with a body, albeit glorified, but will retain that body forever and without end. This is the incarnation. Jesus Christ was born. More so, Jesus Christ was born in an ordinary way that God had deemed from creation in the beginning. This will be a sign for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. The shepherds testified to the incarnation. God had become man. The embodiment of God himself taking on flesh for eternity to redeem the purpose of all creation. And that purpose of redeemed creation involves body, soul, and realm. This world will be recreated, the new heavens and new earth. Your soul, if you you know Jesus today, has been born again. And you too, at the second resurrection, will receive a resurrection body. What does this tell us? God has a sovereign and holy intent for your soul, your body, and your habitation. And He claims dominion and rights to all of them. There is no dichotomy. There is no... There is no break, or I I, I could say it this way there's an ethical continuity, there's a necessary link, there's an intrinsic relationship between who you are in your mind and who you are in your body. And if those things are not in conformity to one another, then it is a perversion, it's a disorder, it needs to be addressed and made right. There are plenty of things in this creation that are broken as a result of sin. But what we need to understand is what is true and holy and pure and perfect and designed by God according to His original order and intent. And then we need to trust as God gives us both conviction and sanctification that that is what we as His people are moving towards. And as we do so, we will be part and testify to God's program to redeem our soul, our body, and this whole earth and heaven as well. We know this is true because Jesus became a man. He has intent for your body and your soul, and just as true as he took on flesh and dwelt among us. So on the one hand, the wickedness of Sodom thinks it's just fine to defile the flesh, rearrange the created order. On the other hand, those who are true believers, they recognize in the incarnation majesty of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of body and soul. Thirdly, this morning, the wickedness of Sodom is evident in that they reject authority, while the shepherds, on the other hand, they recognize the cosmic, if you will, dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 8, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones, reject authority. This authority rejection is seen back in Genesis again, and uh, it didn't take long, or it didn't take much, I should say, for the resentment of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah to take their anger and their hatred and their rebellion against God out on not just their intent to have their way with the angels, but also their anger towards Lot himself. And we see this rejection of the authority of authority in uh, Genesis 19 as the events unfold. These two angels come to Sodom. In the evening, they find Lot sitting in the gate, 19.1. He says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night, etc. Now, in verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they demanded these men that they may have their way with them. What does Lot do? Well, just with a smidgen of conviction and some boldness, testifying to Lot as a righteous man, indeed, though he had many problems. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. And before I read verse 7, he's about to risk his life. But these rabid, rabid irrational, depraved people, wholly given over to their sin, Lot's about to call them out went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door after them, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Wickedly? I'm sure that he screamed in his face, foaming at the mouth. Who are you to judge? He says, Behold, I have two daughters. This obviously is horrible of lot to offer, yet further illustrates the wickedness and perversion of this mob. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. man. Let me bring them out to you and do To them, as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they, the men of Sodom, said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So what made these men more angered and agitated than being denied the lust of the flesh that they so craved was the fact that one of their citizens judged them and said, this is wicked behavior. Please stop. I'll even give you my virgin daughters. Who are you to judge holier than thou? You're not even one of us. You're a sojourner here. Do these attitudes and sentiments sound familiar? Yes, they do. The minute that a Christian, basing his life in confession, with all the compassion he, want, he can muster, nevertheless stands uncompromising for the truth and says something like homosexuality is sin, What do we hear in return? Who are you to judge a sojourner amongst us? Get with the times. That is uh, archaic thinking. You should be progressive. Jesus says to love everyone. To which I respond, the love of God is never promiscuous. God is not a promiscuous lover. He doesn't love everybody all the time just the same. His love is based upon his covenant bond with his people in and through Jesus Christ. There are two kinds of people. There are enemies of God, and there are ones that God has fundamentally changed because he first set his love upon them. But without that distinction, you're either the seed of the serpent, or you are, by God's grace alone, the seed of the woman. You're an inhabitant of Sodom, living by your dreams, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, blaspheming the glorious ones, or you are like those shepherds who recognize the majesty and the glory and the authority and the dominion of the one who came to save you. Things get really sharp and clear when the wickedness of society abounds. Just one small statement of conviction can be met with a backlash of hatred, despising you, calling what you say hate speech, though you're just trying to save them. They may throw you in a gulag, thinking themselves righteous, But this is just because they're living out the wickedness of the human heart, devoid of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, rejecting the authority of God's immutable word. Now, whereas the inhabitants of Sodom despise the truth, on the other hand, the shepherds, who are a good representative of the true church, they recognize the cosmic dominion of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. The angel of the Lord says to them, he appears to them, the glory of the Lord shines round about them. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Can you imagine that moment? I'm sure you have. I don't know what your favorite moment in the Christmas story is. We had a question at family worship last night, you know, which character of the Christmas narrative do you most relate to? And a couple of the crew, uh, my kids said, the shepherds. I think I agree with them. I can see myself as a lowly, unlikely recipient of the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, and the ordinary vocation is interrupted by this megaphone from glory. And quite literally, you have these emissaries of God's holy will descending down Jacob's ladder to proclaim to you that he has come. Incredible. The Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then, kids, who joined this angel? Suddenly there was, say again, A a multitude of angels. Excellent. And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, Sabaoth in the Hebrew, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, the Christmas hymn, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, is very apt indeed. And this event proved it. Though Jesus was humble and to the average person, unrecognizable as the King of kings and Lord of lords, wrapped in swaddling cloths in this humble feed trough, though that was the case to the average eye, to those who had eyes to see, they recognized him as Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. Jesus, at his birth, commanded the worship and the proclamation of all the armies of heaven. The king of kings has come. The second person of the Trinity is born a man. He has come down the ladder, so to speak, to bridge that otherwise unbreachable or uh, unbridgeable chasm between the wickedness of man and the holiness of God. Here he is. And how glorious is he? And what's the reach of his dominion? All of the armies of heaven announce his birth. If you get that RSVP for a baby shower in the mail, ladies, you know, and a lot of times there's a lot of creativity and effort that's put into those, but they tend to be tender and like a lullaby and soft colors and warm fuzzies that you get, and rightly so. It's such an intimate and precious moment when a baby is born. Some people have the mistaken idea that Christmas was like that. It was an intimate and precious moment. Most preciousness. Uh, All this preciousness and and fuzziness beyond what you could possibly imagine. And although the intimacy, I'm sure, of a baby being born and the precious gift of a little one was welcomed by Mary and Joseph. This event moved heaven and earth and was announced by angels and was something of a combination of a great humiliation and a coronation about to happen in 30 years. It was the most incredible interruption of world history that has ever or will ever happen, I might might argue, because of the great miracle that was accomplished when God took on flesh. He commanded the obedience and the praises of all the armies of heaven. Does he command the obedience and praises of his people? He certainly does. The shepherds willfully and joyfully soon join them in proclaiming this glory to all who would listen. And we should willfully and joyfully join them as well. But that command goes out to all the earth. Your king has come and his dominion is cosmic. It's over the heavenlies as illustrated by those armies that announced his birth. It's over the world inasmuch as his ascension sealed his lordship and title deed to every nation of the earth as Daniel 7 had prophesied that before the ancient of days the Son of Man will ascend to receive as his inheritance all the kingdoms of this world. And Revelation prophesies indeed that Jesus Christ upon the fullness of his work can expect and will expect and will receive the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God and He reigns and rules forevermore. On the one side you have the petty, blind, foolish, toddlers, rebels, wicked, depraved human beings sticking their fingers in their ears, yelling at the top of their lungs, tolerance and virtue and progressivism and this and that and the other and marginalized groups, and I can do what I want, and don't tell me what to do, and don't judge me, kicking and screaming in a fit on the stage of our culture. On the other side, you have the believer whose eyes are open to the majesty and the glory and the cosmic dominion of Jesus Christ that has struck fear in their hearts, repentance of sin, and allegiance to that king wherever he sends you. Which are you today? Finally this morning, we have this distinction, this contrast drawn between the wickedness of Sodom and the worship of the shepherds. In Blaspheming Glorious Ones versus Proclamation of Authority, and I'm sure in my zeal I've already touched upon a few of these, so perhaps this last point will be a little shorter. Jude Jude 8 again, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. The wicked, like the sodomites, They rely on the dreams, their subjective experience is is king in their minds. They defile the flesh, they go on finding ways to justify their perverse desires and their sin. They reject authority and find it offensive if anyone should tell them they're wrong. And finally, they go even further by blaspheming the glorious ones. The blasphemy of the glorious ones is, is so incredible and so profound that it's no wonder that the classic example of wickedness gone to seed is, in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis 19. Back in that text, you see quite clearly, quite shockingly and dramatically, the capacity of the human heart, if it's left to its own devices, uh, before they lay down, the men of the city, this is verse 4, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, "'Where are the men who came to you tonight? "'Bring them out that we may know them.'" Of course, this is a term to violate them. The desire is to uh, rape and to have their way with these visitors. Lot went out to the entrance, of course, pleads with them. They are undeterred, however. Not just, they are undeterred by the uh, proclamation of wickedness by Lot and even their own blindness by judgment. The men reached out their own hands, these are the angels, they brought Lot into the house, verse 10, with them and shut the door. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Though struck blind, they still, in their irrational lust and their insatiable desire for wickedness, clawed at the door. Why? Because they, they, in their sin, having metastasized so, sought to blaspheme the glorious ones, to violate even angels. What are glorious ones? Well, that category, of course, most directly refers to these messengers of the Lord that came to Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place. But that principle could be expanded. Glorious ones, those who by office, authority, angels, or other individuals serve as agents of God's holy will. Do you remember Jesus lamenting Jerusalem? Oh, city that kills the prophets. Another way of saying those who blaspheme the glorious ones, I suggest. When the word of God is brought to bear, they make the messenger the enemy in order to justify and remain in their sins. This was particularly stark in Sodom, where these visiting divinely sent uh, angels, messengers with reckoning authority and also the way of salvation were not just rejected, not just dismissed, not just ignored. They were actually sought out to be the objects of the uh, depraved desires of this wholly perverse people group. Anyone today, let me just make this point of application, who is not troubled by the celebration of perversion on the high places of our society, I submit remains oblivious or overtly dismissive in their rebellion to the reproof and the references of Jude. You know, it struck me, we've been going over the exaltation of Joseph in the book of Genesis in chapter 41 recently, and the Spirit of God is acknowledged in Joseph by Pharaoh himself. And this is the chief qualification for him to serve as the grand steward of all Egypt. So in this coronation ceremony, if you will, he's given white linen, a chain of gold, a signet ring, the second chariot, and an entourage. And Joseph goes throughout all the land, all of Egypt, and the uh, servants of the, uh, Pharaoh who go before him command everyone bow before him. Bow, why? Because we recognize in this man is the spirit of Yahweh Himself, and He is the agent delegated with the authority and ability, the anointing of the one true sovereign to save us from seven years of famine. Acknowledge that, respect that, adhere to that. Ask yourself this question, who are the anointed servants in the high places of our day? What qualifications are celebrated by the current administration? Who is the press secretary of Joe Biden, and why does she have that position? Is it not in part because she's the quote-unquote first lesbian to serve in that role? You know, a deputy something, something, Health and Human Services is a name you'd never recognize, but you've probably heard of so-called Rachel Levin. Why? Because they are the quote-unquote supposedly first transgender official in the Biden administration, in the uh, cabinet of our current president, and so forth. You know, recently uh, another pervert got caught sto- stealing women's luggage. He s- serves in the Department of Energy. You probably wouldn't know his name either. But what has happened as these marginalized, perverse, sexual identity individuals are acknowledged by the powers that be, and then they're paraded forth we recognize, in the spirit of this one and marginalized group, who we now, in our virtues, celebrate as equal standing, and we should embrace everyone equally, regardless of their preferences and lifestyle, regardless of where they stand, according to the ancient, immovable standard of God's ethical norms for sexuality and so forth in the scriptures. No, we're going to embrace everyone. And so the emissaries in culture go forward, and they say, "Bow before this individual. Bow before that individual." Well, is there, you know, this morning I was commenting prayer. Is it in prayer? Is any surprise that we've experienced a crisis of public health? Is it any surprise that we're worried for our very existence, whether by fake a crisis or real? We are a people that are absolutely confused. We're absolutely afraid. We're uncertain, unstable in all our ways and crying out for a savior. It's not going to come through any of these means. And what the scriptures tell us, is that this kind of value set, these kind of policies and pursuits is the wickedness of Sodom. And we have to be the exception to the norm and cry out that the the true Savior has come and that he is revealed and most people might miss it as they did then, but nevertheless, it is true. He rules, he reigns. Now, while the wicked go on to violate the glorious ones, to shoot the messenger, to reject the authority of the truth of Jesus Christ. The shepherds, on the other hand, they were a good example. They heralded and heeded the word of God. Verse 15, Luke 2. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord made known to us. So setting their vocation aside, securing someone else to watch the sheep, maybe just leaving there, trusting the angels to be the shepherd in their absence, I don't know. But they had to make some arrangements and make some plans and potentially some sacrifice to follow and to obey this direction that the angels pointed them. And they did so because they believed the word of God. They went, they made haste, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, what did they do? They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They began to speak forth the word of God. They proclaimed the revealed glory and the authority of the angelic messengers. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They proclaimed what the angels told them. They heeded and heralded the word of God. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who blaspheme the glorious ones who deny the messenger and seek to justify themselves in their own sins. And then there are those, however lowly, though they were once sinners, they proclaim the authority and acknowledge the glory of Jesus Christ whose hearts and lives are so moved as to share that news with others at perhaps cost themselves in great sacrifice. Nevertheless, if your eyes have been opened to the cosmic authority of Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that his dominion is from sea to sea, if His majesty revealed in the Incarnation truly sinks into your soul, if the revelation of his glory is your greatest treasure, can we do but other, can we do anything but proclaim the good news? No, we join the shepherds and announce the king has come. This morning, as we transition to communion, I wanted to remind you of one more aspect of the angels visit both Abraham and Lot. In Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 both, these two men who were called according to the covenant, they did not blaspheme the glorious ones, but instead extended to them table fellowship. That is to say they sat down at covenant meal, friendship and fellowship in Abraham's case with the Lord himself. Genesis 18:1, the Lord appeared to him to Abraham By the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing there in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, and that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, three sias, a fine flour, knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man and prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. What is this? This is a precursor to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a type and foreshadowing of reconciliation, covenant friendship and fellowship, and table and meal with the Lord Himself. Because of God's covenant with Abraham, he was welcome to share a meal with the Lord of glory in this pre-incarnate, theophonic, if you will, revelation. Before us today, we have a symbolic meal as well. The bread representing the body of Jesus Christ and the cup representing his blood is the fulfillment of these pictures of old. Not only are we to heed the glorious one, Jesus Christ and his word proclaimed, but we are called to table fellowship with him. This meal pictures that once, what was once broken in sin is restored in Christ. What was once deserving of hellfire judgment and the smoke arising for ages Because of our wicked transgression against the Lord has given way to a meal and to friendship and to communion and relationship forevermore that will culminate in glory. How is this possible? This is possible because Jesus was born to die. Not only was Jesus Lord at his birth, but Jesus was born to take on the burden of that covenant. The consequences and the sanctions that must be satisfied for God to be both just and merciful could only be paid with a perfect substitute. So Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, that sacrificial servant, laid down his own life so that you and me might join him at table. This is the heart of Christian hospitality. First and foremost, it's a hospitable God extending to us through Jesus Christ an invitation to his very table. Saints in this room, if you know Jesus Christ, if you love him, if you've searched your heart, that table is open to you. As you come forward during this song that will be played shortly, I encourage you to do so mindful of the high cost that was paid and the glories of Jesus revealed in his scripture, in his gospel, in his incarnation. If you have not been born again, If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't have that covenant assurance of your soul saved, do not come to this table. It is dangerous to presume that you can have relationship with God as symbolized by this meal without going through Jesus Christ. But if you fall into that category, turn from your sins, repent, ask someone who knows him, what must I do to be saved? And Lord willing, by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, you can join us in sweet communion fellowship with the Lord. That being said, and as the music plays, I invite those who are in the furthest back to file down and to serve yourselves and return to your seats. After we've all been served with elements in hand, I'll return and then we'll partake in the Lord's table together. Welcome to the table of the Lord.